there are um, an increasing number of economists saying um, that we really should stop imports of Russian energy immediately. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen. Today is Friday, March 25th. We could both say good morning and good afternoon. I'm Eric Planey. I am Lucas Finko. I'm David Vortman. Hello. Nice to meet you. And thank you, David, for being here. And together, from Germany to the U.S. of A., we are the Pirates of Clean Tech. Yar! Yar! Yar. <laughs> it's a pretty nice name, actually, uh, Pirates of, plant, uh, of Clean Tech. Yeah, it's a long story, but um, when we were thinking of this uh, podcast, there's an a American musical play called The uh, Pirates of Penzance. And we were at first thinking about doing clean tech ranting about all the, all the negativity <laughs> people against clean tech and so somehow pirates of clean tech came up from that anyways lucas let me turn it over to you to introduce our, our very special guest about a very important topic that we need that everybody has been asking us about of late thank you eric yes of course today we have mr david wortman from berlin in germany he's the ceo of dwr eco he also has two podcasts of his own called let's talk change which is kind of a macro uh, political podcast and Deep Dive Clean Tech. I'm told they're both in German. Um, Deep Dive Clean Tech, also obviously about uh, clean tech like ours is. Uh, he's ex for solar. He helped them uh, build their business in Germany. He's an entrepreneur. He has his own clean tech consultancy. That's uh, DWR Eco. They work with uh, you know clean tech consulting, entrepreneurs, investment consulting, some communication policy and uh, communications agency and policy advisory. So it's a pleasure to have David today, and we're hoping he can talk to us about uh, the European energy situation. So welcome, David. Yeah, thank you very much. I think it's a very interesting time to meet up and uh, very excited about the topics we're going to talk about. Yeah, and you know, I'll say that um, we had waited a while uh, from between our last podcast and this one, because obviously to talk about European energy security is very important for us. So we wanted to make sure that we had the right person, uh, and we're happy to find you, David. Um, it's amazing. Just kind of a big picture commentary a little bit. I know European energy policy, and specifically German, has really migrated over the last you know, 10 to 12 years. And it's amazing how we can talk about Europe and the USA, but a lot of it also stems from an event that took place in Japan in March of 2011, when the Fukushima tragedy took place, and Europe reacted by shuttering its nuclear and changing energy policy a little bit on the fly. Well, I think there was a logical rollout of, of clean energy, but it kind of disoriented everything. Is that how you see it a little bit in terms of maybe energy policy wasn't as coordinated as it could have been because of that reaction? Or do you think, you know, things were just a little bit different and now that's kind of impacting obviously events taking place tragically in Ukraine? Well, I think we probably need to go back even further than 2011 to decide and to say that um, there would have been would have been better to had uh, different decisions. I mean, of course, this is all history, but I think it's still good to go back um, because the decision, what we believe to phase out nuclear energy was the right decision. There are many, many good reasons not to use nuclear. We may talk about it. I don't know. But the decision after Fukushima was basically a decision which was uh, done 
uh, you know, the second time, because we already had a decision in 2001, 2002, around that time to phase out nuclear, but then we had a change of government, and then they decided, well, to phase in nuclear again, and then we had after Fukushima, all of a sudden, um, the political consensus across Germany, across all parties to phase out nuclear. So if we go a little bit more uh, backwards, uh, I think the main uh, uh, the main problem uh, was that we depended ourselves too much on fossil energy imports. Uh, most of the fossil energy imports uh, or most of the fossil energy use is imported from other countries. And as a broader public has got to know now the last couple of weeks, that the dependency on one country is in particular very, very high. And this is Russia. And um, alone, Germany is depending on Russian gas of around 55%. And it's not just the gas, it's also oil of around 30%. And it's also coal. Uh, so we're using around 50% of our coal resources from uh, Russia. So the dependency is very, very, very high. So the decisions uh, made um, backwards um, to even increase the supply source uh, from Russia, uh, that was the main problem. We decided to build a new pipeline uh, into Russia, which we called Nord Stream 2, um, and uh, which was almost finished a couple of weeks ago. So, I mean, it's basically finished, but it never got, uh, but it never, but it, but it was never put into practice, this uh, pipeline. Um, so the main problem we have had was, again, that we depended ourselves too much on, on foreign and in particular Russian uh, fossil imports. I think uh, on the show, we're, we're pretty clear about no, you know, energy source is perfect, right? Every source of energy or electricity has its pros and cons. So, I mean, we understand that it's obviously a difficult decision to make these, these decisions. They're not taken lightly, right? Um, but I wonder if the, the, the equation has changed given the risks that you see now, would that change the decision? If you could go back 20 years on nuclear, would that change the decision? Would you say, look, the, the risks of nuclear are lower than the risks that we're seeing now in Europe? I mean, there are other risks tied to, to nuclear, right? I mean, there's no doubt about it that uh, we don't have any uranium resources to run nuclear power plants. Mm. So we are depending 20, 30% of our um, uranium um, resources also depend on Russia. So yeah. there's another fuel dependency. So it's not that easy that we are not depending on anybody. And uh, we got, you know, there is no uranium sources we could mine uh, out of uh, out of Germany to become independent. Okay. Uh, and obviously there are the risks around um, uh, that. Uh, and this is what you see in the Ukraine right now. I think they have around 15 nuclear power plants. And uh, there's a very, very high risk that some of these power plants could blow up. There would be a meltdown, another meltdown, because they're just not prepared for the case of a war. Uh, right. Just like uh, the nuclear power plants were not, uh, you know, in Fukushima, in Japan, they were not prepared for the um, tsunami. Um, so there are a lot of risks tied to that because there are these risks. There are really no insurers, at least not in Europe, somebody who would insure those power plants um, because the insurance, insurance sum would be astronomically high and therefore would make nuclear energy very, 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 very expensive. Um, and if the private insurers are not there, who else uh, can insure that? The public, right? The government. So 
uh, at the end, you could only introduce and keep nuclear energy by public support, by government subsidies. And, um, you know, and you don't have to do it if you have so many other choices. We hopefully will talk about it. You know, renewable energy. We have so many different renewable energy sources we could use. And we have been building up and using um, already in Europe and Germany already. So for me, it's not a question about um, whether we need uh, nuclear or not. Um, I think the decision has been made. And by the way, just to give you some figures, our dependency on Russia is probably something around, what is it, uh, 1,000 terawatt hours, something like that. Um, and the uh, nuclear power plants, which we still have, by the way, in Germany, we still have three power plants, which are running until the end of the, the, of the year. They're only providing 30 terawatt hours. So it's a, it's a fraction of what we actually need to replace uh, Russian, Russian energy. Um, and by the way, that's the other point as well. Nuclear power is producing electricity and we use gas for heating uh, buildings. And this is where nuclear power, you know, will not be of any help to replace Russian gas. Well, I don't think Germany is a good solar resource either, but you probably have a good wind and good hydro in the south, right? Well, I would say it's always a mix, right? And this probably is really, I think, across the globe. You could say there are, depending the time zones, depending the industry, depending the density of population, the density of industry itself, um, uh, you know, um, depending the latitude, um, uh, there are so many different renewable energy sources which you could use. And uh, everywhere else, everywhere in the, at our globe, you could use them in a different configuration. So, yeah, Germany doesn't have that as much of solar radiation as, let's say, the, the Sahara Desert yeah, or <laughs> southern Spain. Yeah. But we don't need to have it. You know, we have um, already a very, very high potent, a very, very high share of solar energy, which is working perfectly fine. And not just from a technical point of view, but also from an economical point of view. So taking all of these different sources uh, in a combination, wind, solar, hydro, a little bit of bio, bio, biomass, uh, even geothermal has, has having a comeback, um, you know, um, uh, then you get, of course, all these storage uh, mechanisms, green hydrogen, uh, demand site management. There's so much potential around that as well, um, energy efficiency. So taking all of that into consideration, uh, you could uh, run a country like Germany on 100% renewable energy. And it's not just because I say this, because there are so many studies out there Okay. Uh, you know, modeling that. Uh, and it's basically the plan uh, of, of, of Germany to do that. Uh, so it's not, it's, 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 it's already a public, uh, public plan to do that. So your answer segues very nicely into my next question, which was, you know, this morning I saw, for example, uh, negotiation between the U.S. and the EU is that the U.S. is going to increase LNG exports on a temporary basis to Europe as a stopgap measure. But also, um, your point about Germany being able to go 100% renewable, I remember a couple of years ago, there were a couple of days in the year, I think in August, where Germany almost completely ran for that particular day on renewable sources. So we know it could happen. And I think that's why there's a lot of surprise in the clean tech community in America to hear about Nord Stream 2 and the dependency on Russian fossil fuel, because several years prior to that, there was a lot of enthusiasm over a country geographically located in Germany, similar to parts of the northern United States, that actually can run on renewables. So my question for you is, with everything that's happened over the last month in, in Russia and Ukraine, 
how has the German government effectively responded by saying, are we going to be coordinated in implementing, like you said, green hydrogen, you know, uh, a little bit more solar wind energy? Has it been more coordinated and has the political momentum come back to renewables in Germany? Yeah, and it actually came back already before we had this geopolitical crisis uh, with uh, with Russia. Uh, we had a change of government in um, September 2021. And then after negotiation, uh, the new government was formed in December 2021 with the Social Democrats, um, the Uh, Liberal Party, which is sort of the free market party at our end, the so-called FTP, FDP, uh, and the Greens. Um, and uh, the Green Party actually took over a lot of the key ministries. So the Ministry of Economy and uh, Climate Protection, the Ministry of Agriculture, um, the Ministry of Environment, uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Um, so the Greens have really uh, driven um, within these, uh, you know, um, negotiations, um, has driven the new government into a very, very green and uh, pro-environmental and pro-renewable energy agenda. Uh, so they agreed already uh, before the war that uh, Germany would increase the renewable energy share substantially until 2030, uh, for example, 200 gigawatt of photovoltaic in the next uh, years, uh, which is roughly something like 20 gigawatts, slightly more a year, which should be implemented. Uh, wind energy of more than 110, 120 gigawatt, Uh, offshore wind energy, green hydrogen, uh, heating pumps, uh, you know, they have set up a, um, a objective to increase um, the renewable energy share um, uh, of uh, um, uh, until 2030 in the renewable energy heating sector of, of 50%. Um, but some of these things were now accelerated. I mean, the first of all, um, They said, well, this is a very good, I mean, we are on the right track here because of this geopolitical uh, challenges we have with Russia and the high dependency on fossil energies. This is what we need to do anyway, right? Not just because of climate protection, but a few things they have accelerated as well. So they decided, for example, I mean, today is Friday, our recording. They decided a couple of days ago, two days ago, that um, that there will be a ban um, of gas boilers uh, by 2024. So you will not be able to implement any gas boilers into new buildings anymore. Uh, there will be a replacement mandate um, for all fossil fuel heating system all than 25 years. So if you have a gas boiler, which is 26 years, you have to replace it. Mm -hmm. um, also, it's not just Germany, right? Also at the European level, we will, we will see a number of initiatives as well driving this. Uh, and we may talk a little bit more in detail later about it. But uh, the, the uh, driving force now from Europe is, and the intention is to become totally independent of any Russian fossil energy imports by 2027. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a huge, huge driver now uh, to change the whole energy system. And this goes into the heating system, the building system, the electricity system. Germany just decided, for example, to um, have a 100% carbon neutral um, 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 electricity system by 2035. So not 2050, but 2035 already. And in terms of Germany, this means 100% renewable energy. So 
Um, there has been this driver already by the change of government, but this now uh, got accelerated. And I would even assume this will be accelerated even more if we look down uh, the next couple of months, because you never know how Putin is going to react and may even make his own decision to cut out uh, any any exports mm. to Europe. Yeah. This, uh, if Lucas, if I could jump in, this almost reminds me of what we always talk about in the U.S. being the great moonshot of the 1960s where Kennedy bestowed in 1960-61 the mandate to put a man on the moon by 69, and we did it. And we've all talked about in America ad nauseum about being having a moonshot effect and impact. And maybe if there's any good to come out of this horrible tragedy in Ukraine is the fact that I think people are reawakening that we have the capability, we have the technology, now we need the political will to really kind of drive clean, uh, clean energy implementation forward. And what I get motivated about is Obviously, Germany has such a reputation in the U.S. as being technological leaders so that if a product needs to be slightly improved for the future for implementation, German companies can do it. And I would think that's going to have a snowball effect for the rest of the Europe, like Central Europe, that's also relying on you know, Russian gas, et cetera. The, between both the German policy and also technology incubation, I think things are really going to look potentially more positive in the whole continent over the next five years. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, this is obviously a big opportunity as well. And it's, of course, unfortunate to say opportunity in this in this current context here. But I think external shocks, as we have seen with Fukushima, um, as we are seeing now with the, uh, with the war with Russia, uh, this can stimulate and accelerate transformation. And these are very interesting times, these times of chaos, these times of... Um, unstructured uncertainties because uh, either you choose um, to jump on the agenda of old technologies of all those trying to go back um, to solutions of the past there are for example uh, uh, you know ideas out there to drill oil again in the north sea to to drill for gas in germany because there are some resources right um, so either you choose to go down that way um, or you use the opportunity and really go into the next era. You just do the next uh, jump. And this is uh, obviously from my point of view, not just my point of view, luckily, but uh, a lot more and more and more people. And also um, in general from the government as well, um, at least a part of the German government is to say, well, let's jump into the new era of clean tech and let's really uh, boost renewable energy. Let's, um, you know, increase the implementation rate of solar and wind uh, farms. Let's um, uh, accelerate the implementation of heating pumps. Uh, let's go go back and revise options around geothermal and uh, biogas. Um, so there are many, many ways to do that. And this in this status we are currently in, uh, and you see that, you know, different forces uh, currently fighting. Um, and uh, I only can hope that the clean energy and clean tech agenda will uh, be uh, dominant here. Yeah. I mean, we're having the same discussions here too, right? So clean energy advocates are coming out saying, see, we need clean energy. And then oil and gas advocates are coming out and saying, see, we told you we should have drilled more, right? <laughs> so we're having that same battle here. I have so many questions for you, David. This is crazy. Um, so we had heard a rumor when after Fukushima that that Germany went all in on solar and it caused price crazy price swings in German electricity markets. Is, was that true? And what what are the learnings there? 
No, I mean, as you have said it, that's that was not the case. Um, okay. So we, and it had nothing to do with with uh, Fukushima, right? Because uh, when the decision was made in 2011, 2012, um, uh, they didn't shut down any nuclear power plants, but they gradually faded them out over the over yeah. the years. Um, and we still run on nuclear energy. We still have these three power plants, and we are now in the year of 2022, but they will be now shut down by the end of this year. Um, but uh, what we had was a very high installation rate of uh, solar PV. And this was because there was such a high demand uh, for people to implement um, you know, their, you know, PV on their own roof. Um, and there was a very good incentive as well for uh, investors to build up solar power plants, um, free field installations. So um, we accelerated um, the implementation of solar energy, which was great because if we had not done that, we would have had a much bigger problem now, um, to be honest. But for a few years, we had like seven, six, seven, eight uh, gigawatt of solar energy implemented in the market each year. Cool. But if we look back, you know, I mean, this seven, seven eight uh, gigawatt um, seemed to be very huge back then. But if you look at what we are planning right now, we are planning <laughs> at least 20 gigawatt a year. So this is like, I mean, even not even half of that was installed in those peak years. If we go back and look back, it's, you know, we, we should have, uh, you know, kept on going with eight, nine, and even increasing 10, 11, 12 gigawatt um, a year. Um, if we had done that, we would not have the, you know, the same issues as we have for right now. Um, but uh, back then, the mechanism was mainly based on a feed-in tariff. So there was a fixed tariff you got. And of course, uh, if there is like eight, nine uh, gigawatt of installment, uh, somebody would need to pay the feed-in tariff, which is the rate payer, which was distributed to everybody. So in general, the prices uh, for electricity uh, went up because of the EEG, uh, the so-called feed-in tariff uh, um, okay. uh, extra payment and uh, but the mechanism has changed since then um, because large free field systems are um, being um, are part of a tender so you have you have to quote for that um, and uh, secondly the the rate of own self-consumption has increased substantially uh, meaning that there is no rate payer actually affected okay. from that because you just right. produce it on your own and there are houses, I don't know, you can do it 40, 50% of your own electricity you can produce on site on your own on building. And of course, thirdly, um, the cost of solar really came down a lot substantially right. since then. And solar, this is recognized by the International Energy Agency in the meantime as well, is the lowest cost energy globally. Yeah, and we're having all those same discussions. California is trying to kill their uh, rich tariff. For rooftop solar, Florida, I hear the governor is about to sign the bill any minute now. So, yeah, we're having these discussions too. Um, you know, such a rich tariff can't last forever; it has to go sometime. So, we have to bite the bullet on that. Um, yeah, all all fine. very interesting, yeah. all very interesting questions. Yeah, I guess uh, David, just kind of what you were talking about in terms of all the importing both oil and gas from Russia, if if 
is there any modeling out there that suggests what would be best for Germany to really focus on first to have the impact of eliminating as much usage? Is it a matter of converting homes to electricity for heat generation? Or is it a matter of, of really going with electric vehicle rollout uh, to really, you know, uh, reduce gasoline usage? You know, is there any priorities that have been spelled out? And if not, um, you know, is that coming up in a, some sort of central, you know, German planning in the near future? I mean, we need to break down a little bit the numbers. Um, and uh, I already mentioned how depending we are on, on Russian energy. So it's around 50% uh, gas dependency, around 50% coal and around uh, um, 30% of, of oil. Um, and um, these are numbers of last year. Um, but the government has done a lot of extremely tremendous efforts they're doing currently in order to um, lower that. Um, so um, the dependency on Russian oil was already, uh, or as, as we speak, uh, is decreased uh, down to 25%, but it's still a high number. But the plan is to become independent of Russian oil by the end of the year. Um, in terms of oil, it's a little bit easier than on gas because oil you can buy at the global market. Um, oil is basically used as well for electricity production. So you can use, uh, you know, an increasing rate of renewable energy for that, for example. It's uh, also used in the, uh, of course, in the transport and vehicle uh, sector. Uh, so electric vehicles will play a big role um, and, um, you know, sharing services, uh, putting a lot more people into one car. So there are a lot of possibilities, but the aim is by the German government, which was just published today, uh, is to um, become uh, zero depending on Russian oil. So if we talk about coal, um, um, we have this high dependency of 50% um, and uh, the aim is um, uh, to lower it in the next couple of weeks uh, down to 25% uh, because a lot of coal power stations are still running on, on Russian coal. And towards uh, the, the fall, September, October, November, uh, the, the objective is also uh, to have zero dependence on Russian coal. Uh, and coal also is a little bit easier than gas because you can buy coal from other countries, uh, Australia, um, you know, Venezuela, Colombia, there are other sources which you could use, which doesn't make coal better, right? But there are other sources which you could use. Um, but again, uh, you can um, uh, also replace coal by, by energy efficiency measurements, uh, renewable energy and, and, and these sort of things. So the, the, the biggest challenge is actually the gas dependency. And um, so because um, most of the gas is being used in the heating sector, it's not being used in the electricity sector. It's only roughly around 14% of the Russian gas is used for electricity production. Um, and uh, so most of that is it's really heating and uh, that makes it very, very difficult. So the objective here is at least the official objective um, as it was published today is to become independent of Russian gas by um, mid of 2024. Um, I believe that's too late um, because, uh, and we may talk a little bit about the climate crisis as well on a second uh, note here, 
but also I think we need to be prepared um, any day of the decision of the Russian government, of, of, of Putin. You know, we need to be prepared that he is making the decision to stop the export uh, into Europe or into Germany as well. Mm. And that's what the German government is actually doing. I mean, they're not only, they're not going to, they're not talking about everything on public, right? Because this would also give them vulnerability. Um, but, uh, you know, again, it's much, much harder. So one of the ways is that uh, Germany is uh, increasing the import of LNG, liquefied gas um, from the Middle East, uh, from the United States. Uh, this will certainly will drive up global LNG prices um, because you're not giving it away just just uh, just for free or for the old prices. But I mean, an economy like Germany or like Europe will 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 be able to to cope with that. Um, and uh, if there are problems um, on the lower end of the income level, uh, then of course the government would be able to to lower prices for them or to do yeah. to to, uh, to do some subsidies or these these kind of things. So. Um, that's really not the uh, problem on that end. Um, there are um, an increasing number of economists um, saying um, that uh, we really should stop imports of Russian energy immediately. So not really waiting until the end of the year or waiting in terms of gas until 2024, something like that. Wow. Um, and uh, they say, yes, we would probably have an economic hit uh, of four, maybe 5% um, of, um, of our economy. Uh, but and this is what I also support is if we have that hit, this is, this is the price we should pay to stop this war to stop this increasing, this amazing um, uh, war crimes which are going on. There are people dying. This is our, you know, from, from where I live right now to the Ukraine, it's closer than to Italy. And it's, it's really right next door where Russians are bombing theaters where are 300 kids hiding for bombs and they know exactly their kids inside and they die. Um, they are, uh, you know, shutting down whole cities. They leave the people in the city uh, since since one or two weeks now. They don't have any food and drinks anymore. People are dying because of starvation. I think all of this, and I'm just saying this in a very drastic way here, I think all of this should really be reason enough for us to say that it's worth it to take an economic hit. And by the way, this economic hit um, is probably not going to be higher than the economic hit, which we had in the first year of the COVID pandemic. And we all survived. Mm. Of course, we, we all mm -hmm. had problems. We, I mean, businesses went down. Uh, it, it was terrible. But this is nothing against what those people are currently experiencing. And it's not just what the people are um, you know, experiencing there in terms of death and uh, and uh, you know, getting injured and all of get, getting replaced. It's a, it's a huge migration going on internally and externally. Four or five million people are on the half of the population is being displaced internally already or externally. But my you know last sentence on that is uh, we need to defend our freedom as well. And if we are not going to stop these kind of behavior. Uh, this will continue or the likelihood that this will continue is very high. So I think it's really worth it to take, to have this economic hit. And um, yeah, so this is where we are right now. Yeah. Well said. And, you know, 
my father grew up 30 miles from the Ukraine border in Slovakia, completely understand that perspective. And um, you're absolutely right. A 4% hit to the German economy is nothing compared to what millions of refugees are suffering with right now. And we have to stop the behavior that is driving these refugees to exist in the first place. So um, that's really, thank you. That's a great way to kind of end talking about geopolitics. David, you know, because we're so focused on what's happening geopolitically, we didn't really ask you about your firm and, and DWR Echo. So uh, why don't we, before we close out, why don't you talk a little bit about what you're currently doing uh, in, in your current role? Well, we set up DWA Echo in 2012 um, with the intention to have a consultancy and an agency out there which is only focusing on clean tech. Um, back then, to a certain extent, I think still even now, um, there are not many players out there who are 100% focusing on technologies and business models which will help us to combat the climate and the environmental crisis. Um, there are a lot of players out there which are very neutral. They you know, support gas, they support nuclear, they support, uh, I don't know, this and that, maybe some solar, et cetera. But we decided right from the beginning, we are only going to put any effort and time into things which will help our environmental and climate crisis. And we are only going to work with those clients together who would have a solution. And um, I'm a strong believer that, uh, of course, we need to change policies. We need to change the way how we live. We need to have, you know, strong environmental groups fighting for that. We need the public speak up uh, like the Fridays for Future uh, movement, um, Greta Thunberg and many, many others. Uh, this is all important and we need to address this. We need to have a behavior change, etc. But this all will not work if we don't have the technologies in place to do this or if we have mechanisms and business models or let's say consumer uh, uh, you know, patterns ready um, in order to reach those objectives. And this is what we are doing. We are, first of all, we are helping um, companies to understand the regulatory and the policy environment. Um, we help policymakers uh, to make the right decision um, to create a playing leveling field for clean technologies, because very often this is not the case. If we think around solar and wind in the past, if we think around green hydrogen currently or electric vehicles, they don't have a playing leveling field. So we help to change those legislations and advise both companies and policymakers to do these changes. Our second thing we are doing is helping on the communication side um, and um, helping companies to position their solutions in the market so that they get picked up. Um, we help them to accelerate, to scale, um, and uh, get the visibility in the market. Um, so we are a full-service communication agency, everything from social media, uh, campaigning, uh, you know, product placement, et cetera, et cetera, marketing, PR, press, uh, journalism, and all of that. The third pillar uh, we, we have is uh, we are a strategic advisory. So we help um, particular uh, investors uh, and uh, corporates um, to make the right decisions about their um, investments. Um, so we help to put money into the right uh, place, into the right startups, into the right, seg the right segment. So we help um, those decision makers um, who have the money for investments 
to understand where are um, business opportunities out there, where are uh, risks out there on the market side. So, um, uh, yeah, we uh, try to get the money into the right uh, place here. So this is the core, what DW Eco is doing. This is how we are earning our money. This is, uh, and we see this basically not as a way of making money. Of course, we need to make money in order to pay our people, in order to pay our rent and, and everything what we have. But as I said a little bit earlier, for us, uh, doing this is actually a way of helping to um, you know, mitigate and combat climate change and the environmental crisis we are in. Um, and because we are really impact-driven, uh, we are not only having this, let's say, for-profit activities, but we also do a lot of non-profit activities. Uh, we uh, do studies, non-for-profit, how to uh, run a country, how to run a community, a, a county, um, a state on 100% renewable energy. So we do these sort of, you know, scientific study. We collect the money. We, we are scientists to look at that. And the vehicle here is the uh, Energy Watch Group. So it's, it's a nonprofit organization independently working on these sort of things. Um, we are, and you mentioned this in my in our introduction. We are doing, you know, these podcasts, so we are pro providing a lot of content, um, and, you know, to educate the market, to educate policymakers, to educate journalists. Um, so let's talk change, and uh, also uh, deep dive clean tech um, is is a podcast which are available everywhere. Most of them are in German. Um, we have a few in English, uh, but I think it will increase the English content as well. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, we also support business groups like the Leaders for Climate Action, which we have founded, uh, which is a you know an increasing big organization of startups, venture capital, and digital companies across Europe. More than I think one thousand five hundred companies are inside who promised to become uh, carbon neutral. Um, so we try to, um, you know, use these forces as well in the industry independently of any regulation pressure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, we are also, um, you know, for example, now on, on Monday, uh, we will have a German US business round table where we'll discuss, um, you know, um, Uh, topics uh, around how to collaborate uh, in the renewable energy space. And we do this under the umbrella and name uh, Sun and Wind Belt, uh, which we think it's a good uh, <laughs> you know, impression to demonstrate that we have this huge belt. It's not a Bible belt. It's not a rust belt. But uh, it's really this sun and wind belt from Europe over to the US, which could help us uh, commonly to get independent from uh, from any fossil fossil uh, energy. Oh, that's great! Um, if you send us a link, we'll put it up on the podcast for that. Um, if that's uh, if people can attend it, sure. Uh, yeah. great, that sounds like great, and that's the level of cooperation we need to have. But the technology, the size of market, the scalability of our two countries. And its impact on global markets is so significant if we're not collaborating. Because I've always said, in order for us to achieve our Paris Climate Accord goals, we have to be smart about allocation of capital. And we have to be most impactful for every dollar we spend, every euro we spend. And so these, these collaborations are fantastic. So 
it's really great to hear what you're doing. Uh, we certainly want to support you any way we can. Yeah, sure. We are really, you know, looking into it is now to extend uh, partnerships with um, the United States. You mentioned before, I have been working with uh, First Solar in the past. Um, we have a lot of uh, US clients who are interested in Europe, but we also have clients who are interested uh, in the US. And I think also, you know, going through this common experience here of uh, this big disappointment coming uh, from Russia, um, because there has been a very, very big willingness as well to collaborate with with uh, with Russian companies as well in the past. But I think uh, we need to strengthen ties even more um, with our partners in Europe, with our partners uh, in, in the United States, but of course as well uh, in, in Asia. And uh, so we as DWA ECO, uh, we are um, going to have a lot more partnerships in the U.S. going down the road. Yeah. But this is great. And Lucas, I don't know if you have anything before we wrap up here, but this has been a fantastic conversation. Yeah, this has been great. Uh, yeah, I guess just thank you, David, for coming on and illuminating us. I think, I think you've given us kind of um, a view into how urgent this matter is, right? Um, there's... There's been some thinking that, you know, climate change is so slow that there's no urgency, right? So now with this, with this complexity in, in Europe, there's finally some urgency to climate change, right? So I think that's, that'll be important for us. Yeah, I mean, we got, uh, I mean, to simplify it, we got one solution for at least two crises. And that's the energy <laughs> and security crisis and the climate crisis. Right. And uh, I mean, just just a couple of weeks ago, uh, we have had the the latest uh, report by the uh, IPCC, by the World uh, Climate uh, Report, and it's alarming. The United Nations General uh, Secretary General uh, he said mankind is choking on fossil energy, so we are really um, messing that up currently. There are more and more places. Uh, at our planet and our globe, which are not habitable. Uh, people are migrating. Um, we have a, still a growing population globally. So we really, really need to change things. So we need to get away of um, any CO2 emissions. And that's um, coal, that's gas, that's um, yeah, oil. We need to get, get away of that um, as quickly as possible. Agreed. Amen to that. So, David Wortman, thank you so much for spending time with us. Um, you know, we hope to maybe in the future follow up with you and hear a little bit more uh, so our, our, our listeners can hear a little bit more maybe a year from now about the progress that has taken place or even six months from now. That would be, would be we would love to have you on again. Sure. Yeah, that would be great. Nice talking to you and um, yeah. All right. Thank you. We can be taught at time. Thank you. Yeah. And we're back. Uh, Lucas, I don't know about you, but that was the right guest at the right time with David. I thought that was fantastic. Yeah, I know. I wanted to keep him on for another hour, but we couldn't keep him. I just have like 10 more questions for him. <laughs> so there's so much going on. I think the perfect, maybe this will be the title of our podcast for today, but I loved when he said one solution for two crises. Yep. And I think that crystallized everything right now. And we all needed the shot in the arm. Unfortunately, we don't want to have a tragedy taking place in Ukraine to be that shot in the arm. But the reality is everyone has woken up again. We can't rely on 
belligerent nation states to be the ones sending their uh, natural resources. It's bad for the environment and it's bad for geopolitical security. So we have to stop it. Yeah, I mean, it has so many tentacles, right? And it has so many implications. You know, like I was going to ask him about geographic diversity, because here in the U.S., we're lucky we have deserts in the southwest. We have rainy mountainous areas in the northwest. We have, you know, wind-blown Great Plains in the middle of the country. Germany doesn't have that, right? So they they can't, they're going to have to run transmission lines all over Europe, the, down to Spain and France. And so that'll reinforce kind of the European um, Union also. So. Yeah, there's so many different uh, ways this can go and complexities that come out of this that we could just talk forever about this. We don't have it to the extent the U.S. does, but I remember that day in which Germany was producing 100% renewable energy for the grid. And it was because there was a lot of wind in the north, off the North Sea, pushing the wind turbines. And it was an incredibly sunny day in the southern part of Germany, you know, in Bavaria, et cetera, that all the solar was really firing on all cylinders as well. So they have enough that they can diversify in like little pockets, but to, yes, not to the point of the U S. Um, yeah. And they have mountainous regions in the South, so they should, they should be able to do hydro also. So yeah, I, I think they have it. You know, I was going to ask them about land usage too, which we saw in the Princeton study. That might be an issue in Germany because there's not a lot of open land available in Europe. You know, that's all I'll take. I'll tell you though, years ago when I think maybe it was 20, 2012, uh, I was flying into Germany in Munich. And, you know, as you start getting those little village suburbs, I couldn't believe I saw rooftop solar on churches, on, you know, government buildings, universities. So they do put a lot of rooftop solar up. Um, so I think, you know, maybe they'll want to have some concrete mason blocks to go with it. Uh, so Definitely. About that. But yeah. Germany is, is making, I mean, Germany is the most efficient country in so many ways. So they're going to find ways to making sure they're utilizing the land correctly. Uh, and taking, you know, ag and everything else into consideration. But I thought it was a great podcast. This is one of our best ones. And uh, Lucas, oh, I love that he said too, like, maybe we should just drop all Russian energy imports immediately. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, that's the kind of thinking I want to hear, right? Let's just drop all coal right now. Let's drop all natural gas right now. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't believe him when he first said it. I didn't think it's possible, but he made the case. We had went through it during COVID, and you know what? The people of Ukraine deserve this type of hard action. There you go. Hard decisiveness. Um, when you see these children in hospitals in the Ukraine, what they're going through right now, they deserve better, and we deserve to step up. And we've done it to a certain extent, you know, U.S. plus Western Europe. We could do better. We could do more. Yeah, that's so. crazy. Well, as you can probably tell, we're not doing articles today. Um, I think our first episode ever, we're not doing articles, but we'll get back <laughs> to that next week. Um, this was great. And, uh, you know, thank you, Lucas, for, for putting such a great guest together for us. And uh, I hope that people spread the word and we'll get David's, uh, David's interview out uh, as, as soon as we can. Yeah, I hope this spurs some discussion and some talking among the industry and among the policymakers that uh, we need to be thinking bigger and taking bold action, right? So views and opinions expressed by Lucas and I are those of ourselves, not any organizations we are affiliated with. And any public company we talk about, we are not making a recommendation one way or the other about any underlying public securities that you may be able to purchase or sell. So please do your homework. Please call, consult with a registered investment professional and uh, don't listen to us for any advice that way. 
And you can also find us on YouTube if you want to follow along the articles with us. Uh, you search for Pirates of Clean Tech and you click subscribe and then there's a little alarm bell and that'll notify you when our latest video is out, which you want to get right away. Uh, you can also find us on your favorite podcast venue. Search for Pirates of Clean Tech and you'll find us. I think a lot of people watch us on Apple Podcasts. We're on about a dozen podcast sites. So you can find us where you like to listen to podcasts. Cool. Well, with that, I'm Eric Plainy. I am Lucas Finko. And together we are the Pirates of Clean Tech. Yar. Yar.